0: Welcome, um, I get the privilege of talking this afternoon and as a church we're spending the summer as you know looking at the book of Ruth so we've we've done three out of the six installments or episodes and uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, it's it's such a wonderful little book and uh, kind of tucked away in the middle of the old testament but one of the the themes which we we really felt which is kind of why we've called the series under the wings of god is this this overarching theme through the book of the provision of god and uh this week i 'm going to explicitly really be focusing on on this under the wings of God and explaining that imagery a bit, so sorry it 's taken till week four, um, but it is kind of there as a theme throughout the whole book. But just briefly, the story so far is that there 's been a family in israel they 've left Israel and gone to Moab, neighboring country um, where because of famine and while they 've been there, tragedy has struck. The father of the family, the two sons have all died, leaving the mother, Naomi, as a widow and the two daughters-in-law who were from Moab, um, Ruth and Orpah, also as widows. And then Naomi has gone back to the land of Israel and taken Ruth with her, or rather Ruth took herself back with Naomi, it was, that was the emphasis while they've been there, uh, we heard last week, Ruth starts to glean in the fields to p- try and provide for her and Naomi. And uh, uh, it so happens that the field she works in belongs to a, a man named Boaz, um, who is an extremely impressive character. And uh, we'll be looking at him a bit more this week. So I'm going to pick up the story. I'm going to read the last verse of chapter two, and then I'm going to read all of chapter three. So she, that is... Ruth, stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. So spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. I think we should pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you have reminded us of your love and the invitation that we have to come into your presence just as we've worshipped this afternoon. And now as we turn to your word, we pray, open it up to us. May you enrich our, our minds and stir our spirits and draw us closer to you. Father, I pray you will help me to communicate clearly And that for each of us, we will go away changed because we have encountered you this afternoon. Amen. This narrator is a master storyteller. You know, if this kind of book had been published, it would have gone straight to the top of the bestseller charts. And he kind of weaves this intrigue. There's a beautiful kind of symmetry to the book, which we don't have time to look at uh, today. But... I don't know whether you felt this at the end of last week, but there was there were signs of hope, but then he left us on a little bit of a dampener at the end of the story, which is why I read that last verse. don't know whether you noticed it, but Ruth goes into the fields and she harvests and she's there till the end of the barley harvest and the end of the wheat harvest. That's two months, roughly. And it says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And that really is the narrator drawing attention to the fact that there's been this very promising meeting with Boaz earlier in the chapter, but then two months later, nothing else has happened. Now, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't read chapter four, but if you read chapter four, you'll see that when they have a mind to do things, things can happen very quickly when it comes to marriage and that kind of thing. So the fact that there's two months of inaction just raises a question for us. And so we're going to look at how this kind of situation was resolved or partially resolved uh, this week. But I'll warn you, the chapter again ends with a big question mark. Okay, invites us back for next week. So I'm going to look at three R's this afternoon. Um, These ones, unlike the ones that we usually refer to, actually do all begin with the letter R. Um, And the first one is risk. Naomi comes up with a plan, and it is an extremely risky plan. There's no doubt about it. I mean, on the surface of it, the plan starts off very straightforwardly, wash, wash, make yourself smell nice, put some clothes on, that's all kind of okay. And then the kind of risk factor comes in when she has to go to this threshing floor and hopefully uh, lure Boaz into marriage. Now, I think that mothers-in-law, mother-in-laws, mothers-in-law, um, have a, quite a bad press, quite a bad reputation uh, in, in our culture. They're caricatured as interfering and manipulative and difficult and hard to please, all those kinds of things. In fact, I saw a cartoon the other day. It was a husband and wife talking, and uh, the one was saying to the other, I refuse to commit all afternoon at your mother's without a viable exit strategy. and um, And that's the kind of feeling that we have, I think sometimes when it comes to, to mother in, mothers-in-law. And it's true that that relationship can be a bit tricky. I'm sure that is true in certain cases. But I think it would be wrong to read this episode here as being an interfering mother-in-law. That's not the sense of it at all. In fact, here we've got two widows who are on their own and they are extremely vulnerable. Extremely vulnerable in this culture, And so what is best for Ruth is going to be best for Naomi. There's no doubt about that. Ruth has pledged herself to Naomi. And so I think together, although the instigator it would seem here is Naomi, I think together they come up with a plan that will secure Ruth's future by getting a husband, but also secure Naomi's future and the future line of the family. Now, when Ruth left Moab, she her chances of getting a husband were extremely slim. That's why Naomi urged her to stay. Don't come with me. You know, I'm not going to produce another son for you. There wasn't much at all to commend Ruth on the surface of it, to make her marriageable. She was a foreigner. Steve described her last week in very emotive terms as a, an economic migrant she was from a country that israel looked down on they weren't on particularly good terms she was a widow which meant that she, you know that kind of means that you're not particularly attractive to to a man to be married to because you've already been married so again uh, there was an issue there but not only that she was barren 10 years she'd been married and no children had come of it again unusual in those times so who in their right mind would want to marry her anyway would be the question but then we see this boaz appear on the scene last week and he seems to take an interest in her he treats her extremely kindly and you know invites her to eat with him says you can uh, my men will look after you there's nothing to fear here extremely kind so kind that she was astonished what, who am I that you would even consider me, is the sort of language she uses in chapter 2. And I think although it was initially surprising, I think it was also very attractive to Ruth that this man would take an interest in her. But then, as we've seen, after this promising start, nothing's happened for two months. So maybe there wasn't anything in it. Maybe Boaz is just like this because he's like this to everyone. Anyway, this plan involves her in the night going and lying at the feet of this man. She basically risked everything at this point. She had absolutely everything to lose. She had everything to gain, but she had everything to lose here. She could have been just rejected out of hand. Who do you think you are coming to my threshing floor in the night? She could have been exposed to humiliation and mockery do you know what that Moabite did? She could have been exposed to horrible things. A vulnerable single woman on her own at night on a threshing floor with a load of male uh, farmers around. It's not the best position to put herself in. She made herself vulnerable. And also, and probably the the worst of all of them would be that she could be accused of being an adulteress with that sort of behaviour. And if you were an adulteress, you got stoned. So she risked an awful lot to carry out this plan. And it just emphasises again Ruth's courage shining through. We saw it in chapter one when she left um, her people and threw her lot in, if you like, with the people of Israel, with God's people. And here again, she's prepared to take that courageous step And carry out this plan. And sometimes God will bring us to a point like that. Where we have to take that, we may phrase it as a step of faith. Fine, if God tells us to do it, it is a step of faith. But it also could feel risky. And it could be a courageous move for us to do it. But he often asks us to do that in order to bring us into a place where he can pour out his blessing in a new way to us. And that is certainly the circumstances here. So the first thing then is risk. The second thing is romance. Romance, I find this quite an interesting area. Um, and um, I feel that it's a fairly subjective sort of area as well. And, um, yeah, I, well, it could be what? Candlelit supper. Could be sat on, on the beach watching the sun go down. Could be taking your beloved to a, a football match. Could be... <laughs> It could be flowers? Could be a card. Could be a, a, a handshake. Whatever. I don't know. Could be anything. Um, I. <laughs> if you want, if you have a partner and you're a risky, you want a risky question. Then ask them, "What's the most romantic thing we've done?" Dare you? It could turn out interesting. I say this because I asked that question yesterday. It was, uh, I'm not allowed to say what the responses were, so you'll have to ask Beck. She said, is this for your sermon? <laughs> anyway, now that I've embarrassed her. There's no doubt that whatever your view of rom- what the romantic is or what romance is, that reading this passage, it kind of pulses with romance pulses with a kind of romantic and emotional tension uh, throughout the whole story. Now, before we set out on exploring this, I do want to warn you, there are some very strange, appear to us strange elements to the story. And I will definitely, as my boys grow up, be warning them of the dangers of women appearing at the end of their bed in the middle of the night uninvited. You know, so there, there are kind of aspects of this story that we, we need to think about. Um, so I'm just saying, anyway, that we're, we're straight on this. But nonetheless, it is a romantic story. So, the setting. The setting is the romantic setting of the threshing floor. So what's threshing? Well, threshing is the thing that comes between harvest and winnowing. Okay, so they harvest the crop and then they thresh it out, which they spread out the grain in this case on the, on the floor and then they beat it with whatever they beat with in those days it would have been some sort of uh, broom type thing that they beat it and the idea is that it loosens the grain the good stuff from the rest of the of the plant the rest of the thing that's harvest being harvested and then they winnow it which is where they throw it up in the air and the chaff's all blown away and the good stuff remains so it's that kind of phase in between and um, if you're interested in finding out more you could go to the Threshing Bee which I found out about here's a, um, uh, the website so the Northern Illinois Steam Power Club um, second Thursday in every August they run the uh, Threshing Bee and I've heard it's a it's a, a jolly old time um, so if you're interested I don't think they're yet taking bookings but um, you could find out more there but anyway, so they they kind of thresh out this grain on the threshing floor, spend all day just beating it out. So it's, it's you know proper hard work. Um, and at the end of the day, the workers gather, and the owner, who is Boaz in this instance, provides refreshments food, drink for his workers. They sleep over at the threshing floor uh, because by then it's too late to go back into the town. And then they get up early, ready for another day of threshing. And that's the the kind of way it works. So that's happened. um, And Boaz goes and settles himself by his grain to sleep. Meanwhile, Ruth, at home, has been getting herself ready. She's washed herself, She's anointed herself and get dressed. The language is really important here because it's not in a kind of um, inappropriate way that she's doing it, in the way that maybe you, a, a prostitute would adorn herself and kind of dress up in, in that kind of slightly, sim, well, very sinful way. Um, it's not that language. It's much softer, gentler language to it. And the words are all about just making herself presentable and spending time doing that and she comes and lays herself at Boaz's feet after he's gone to sleep so that's the setting then we have the timing so around midnight some translations say or in the middle of the night Boaz wakes up to find this woman at his feet I mean what must he have thought what must have gone through his mind is this a dream how did she get there I thought I only had one to drink. I mean, what what was going on Um, through his mind? In the middle of the night, disorientated, this woman is there. So he says, who are you? And then we have the proposal. The proposal by Ruth. I think, therefore, we can date this event to the 29th of February. Isn't that the date when uh, when the woman proposes? Um, So... But she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I think these are some of the most romantic words in the whole of Scripture. Just love them, so rich, so layered in meaning. And the, the word, hopefully, wings will remind you of something that was said back in chapter 2, that Steve looked at last week, where in verse 12... He's, uh, Boaz, speaking to Ruth, says, May the Lord reward you for your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. What Ruth is actually saying in this sentence to Boaz is, I want to marry you. I want you to be my husband. Cover me. Protect me. In fact, be the answer to the prayer that you prayed the first time we met when you asked God to cover me with his wings by you covering me with your wings. That's what she's saying. She's saying you are the one who can redeem me and save me, provide for the future, give this security which I need. I find that amazing. Absolutely amazing. So... She could have just said, spread your wings over me. She could, to be even more straightforward, which most men require, just marry me, um, please. But she didn't. She, she said this, but she, she asked, or the reason she gave was, for you are a redeemer. So why did she even use that word? Well, this refers to a couple of, of, Uh, two different cultural practices which were around at the time, which I think it's probably worth us just looking at. They can be uh, a bit tricky for us to get our head around because they're so different from the way our culture works. So the first practice of these is the practice of kinsman redeemer. This is a near relative who is able to act on behalf of someone in the family who needs redemption of some sort. Now, the redemption can take many forms. It could be the redemption of land or property. It could be the redemption of a person if they've sold themselves into slavery. The kinsman redeemer can buy them back out of slavery. Uh, It's that sort of thing. It can also be a life. We read about the avenger of blood in certain Old Testament passages where uh, if there's been an accidental murder then the uh, near the kinsman redeemer can go after the person who's done the killing and kill them to redeem the life so it was something that was put down within the law leviticus 25 gives most detail about it but the thing that's important for us is this kinsman redeemer is always about restoration it's always about restoring the, the wholeness of the family. Whether it's property or people or whatever. It's about restoration and there is always some price to pay. Always some price to pay in the redemption. So that's the first thing. The second thing that she is also appealing to is the idea of levirate marriage. Now, Leverate marriage is described in Deuteronomy 25, and this is a law which makes provision for a close relative to marry a widowed woman in the family in order to raise up a son, who will then be an heir, to continue the family line, so they can inherit the property and continue the family name. And what we see here in the story of Ruth is these two ideas coming together. Okay. Which is what makes it complicated and why there are thousands and thousands of pages of commentaries written on this, on this book, basically. <laughs> but that's my read of it. Okay. Is that, that this kinsman redeemer has the, the ability to, to redeem a person or property. And this leverate marriage is a a thing within the law where you're able to continue the family name by marrying your widowed sister-in-law. Both practices are about the well-being of the whole clan, kind of tribal solidarity, if you like. It restores something that is missing. That's what redemption does. And it shows that within the law there's an expectation that this is the way family will act. That there will be that, that sacrificial love and devotion and loyalty to other people within your clan in order that the best thing for the clan can happen. So Ruth's proposal is fascinating. Um, but what is very clear is that it is a marriage proposal. And she says to Boaz, please marry me. And then we get the acceptance by Boaz. And he says, basically, yes! That's what he says. He doesn't say it quite like that because it would have woken everyone else up. But that's what's happening. Now in a sort of tasteful Hollywood film, they would, you know, lean in to kiss and then the cameras would pan away and... You know, that kind of thing. That doesn't happen here. The author builds the romantic atmosphere even more because they don't just lean in and kiss because that would have snuffed it out there and then. What happens is he speaks. And so he first of all blesses her in verse 10, may you be blessed of the Lord. How many of you said yes by saying, may you be blessed of the Lord? Just wondering. And then he says, you have shown your last kindness to be the greatest of all of them. Kindness, Hebrew word hesed, and the only reason I refer to it is because kindness in our language isn't the, doesn't have the kind of depth to it that the Hebrew word here has. It's a, it's a word which describes the very heart of God. It's the way God acted towards Israel. In bringing her out of slavery, choosing her when she was absolutely nothing. When she ran away from God, he drew her back with this hesed, this kindness. He chose her, he was faithful to her. And what we've got in Ruth is a picture of a lifestyle of hesed, a lifestyle of kindness. Kindness. And again, if you haven't heard last week's talk, then I encourage you to listen to what Steve did because he drew out the way that Boaz kind of manifests really this heart of God in the way he, he acts. It's this lifestyle of kindness. So he blesses her. He says that she is displaying kindness in asking to marry him and then says, you are a woman of excellence. I love that. Although she had so much that was stacked against her, being a foreigner, being barren, being a widow, she also has some things in her favour, the main one of which is her character. She is a woman of excellence. And because of her character, she has wanted to become part of the people of God. And it is out of that that she is now finding her security. I love the way he doesn't say, you're a woman of excellence. He says... All my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So you might not have heard the yes yet. Um, it's not there, but it is there in all that he's saying. Except that, verse 12, it's true I'm a close relative, but there's a relative who's closer than I. Some sting in the tail. And just for a minute, imagine that you were reading this for the first time. You know, they've kind of met, it's all, you know, oh, he's not doing anything, what's going on? Oh, now, what a plan, that's clever. And it's coming together and he's saying, he's saying, wow, yes, yeah, but I can't. I can't. I mean, can you imagine it? Will you marry me? Well, I would love to, but there's someone else who might want to, so I'll check with them and get back to you. That's what he's saying. I mean, but this is, this is maybe an explanation of why he hasn't done anything for two months. Because actually he doesn't have first claim over her. To act in this way of kinsman redeemer, he doesn't have first claim. There is someone else who should be doing this. And so that's where we get left hanging at the end of the chapter. We know he's going to act, but what's going to be the outcome? I think in all the complication of this romantic setting and the, kind of the, the ancient practices which need a bit of explaining, the main point to say is, Ruth asked Boaz to marry her, and he said yes. Well, that excites me. He said yes. Yeah, thank you. And he, in saying yes, is saying, I am prepared to act as your Redeemer. I am prepared to reflect God the Great Redeemer in the, it, by me marrying you. And there will be much more about this next week. So, risk, romance, but the standout thing for me in this chapter is righteousness. The towering integrity of character of Ruth and Boaz. Now, it might not appear it to our eyes. I mean, she's kind of got herself dressed up and gone into his bedroom at night. But, but it's what happens then. Righteousness. So I'm going to take each of them in turn and just look at how they acted righteously and what that actually means in this context. So Boaz, first of all, um, even though he really, really, really wants to marry Ruth, he knows that God has set up the law to provide for those who are vulnerable. And he is prepared to forego that and let another marry her in order that God's will is done rather than his will. I find that amazing. He won't do anything that's not in line with God's word. And as a sign of his intentions that he will do that, he says to her, stay here till the morning, because that's safer than going back to the city, which will have had the gates locked. He then says, leave before anyone else can see, because that preserves her integrity, so that there aren't going to be wagging tongues around. And he fills her cloak with six measures of barley. That's a lot of barley. It's so much that it says, he laid it on her. So you kind of, yeah, there you go, love, off with your barley. But, I mean, it's the generosity that's, that's in evidence here. But I love the fact that he says, give me your covering. You've asked me to cover you. Now give me your covering. I will pour abundantly into your covering and you can take it. Love that. What is even more impressive is when we remember the context. Remember that the very opening verse of this book says that it was at the time when the judges ruled. And if we read the last verse of Judges, it says this was a time where there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I think this scene provides a really powerful counterexample to what was going on at the time of the Judges. And in fact, if you read, and you'll have to do this in your own time, read the last few chapters of Judges, chapter 17 onwards, and see what sort of a picture is painted of the people who are associated with Bethlehem. It is not good. Not good. They worship other idols. They chop up concubines that are raped to death. That kind of thing. It is pretty gross stuff. But it is the number of times that Bethlehem is linked in there. And then we read chapter one of Ruth. There was a man of Bethlehem who went to Moab. We're thinking, well, we wouldn't expect anything less, would we? They're from Bethlehem. And so then in chapter 2 and verse 4 we read there was Boaz who came from Bethlehem. And we're thinking, oh my word, not again. And he shocks us. He shocks us because he is different. He shocks us because he lives out this hesed, this lifestyle of kindness towards other people. He lives righteously. And suddenly we think maybe something good could come from Bethlehem. And we know what we think of in December about Bethlehem and people born there. So Boaz is an incredible example of righteousness in a society that was not righteous. What about Ruth? Well, Ruth too provides a stark contrast to the story of how her people came about. So if you uh, read back in Genesis chapter 19, there's a pretty sordid tale there um, where Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, flees from Sodom. He's saved from the, the judgment that God pours down on that city. He, he runs with his two daughters and they go up into the mountains. The daughters think our best chance of having a child is to get our father drunk and sleep with him. So that's what they do, one on one night and one on the next night. They get pregnant. From one daughter comes a son called Ammon, from whom the people of Ammon come. From the other comes a son called Moab, from whom the Moabites come. So the people of Moab started from some cheap, drunk, incestuous night in a cave how different from what we've got here at the threshing floor. We've got a righteous man of Bethlehem treating with honour, respect and dignity a woman of Moab. And she in turn acting righteously and with purity. And I really want us to be challenged this afternoon by the example of Ruth and Boaz in terms of their righteousness, in terms of their putting the standards of God first. What is most clearly in view in this story is sexual purity. And in particular, the issue of saving sex for marriage. That's what happened here. There's no doubt in my mind that that the incident happened and then they went back to sleep. I have I've no, no doubt in my mind. I'm sure there'd be butterflies in their tummies. But I don't think that anything unrighteous or inappropriate happened here. Why? Because I think the whole plan was concocted, if you like, by Naomi, and she knew the characters of the people she was dealing with. Now, let's not kid ourselves. It's difficult in our sex-saturated culture, to keep ourselves pure. Whether you're single, married, dating, courting, walking out with, I don't know all the terms, um, divorced, widowed, whatever you are, it is difficult to keep ourselves pure in the culture that we live in. It's in your face, All the time. There is a fight on for righteousness and purity, and in particular in this area. And I think within that, there's a particular danger for people who are getting ready to be married. And like here, you could find yourself in a situation where maybe it all seems right. Why not? We're going to get married anyway. I remember when we were engaged we were actually at university at the time, and I had a number of friends who said to me, what, so you're not going to sleep together? How's that going to work? You know, kind of, why wouldn't you? You've got to check that everything works, surely. And those sorts of things. And that's the pressure of the world squeezing in on us. And so, the example of Ruth and Boaz is to maintain your righteousness and to keep yourselves pure but although that is the, the kind of main thing I suppose in this passage that righteousness is much much broader than, than sexual purity much broader and so I just want to broaden it out righteousness you see is a kingdom issue Romans chapter 14 if it's still in my Bible Yeah there it is. Um, And verse 17 says for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is a kingdom issue and the epistles talk again and again and again about righteousness. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. And he then goes on to say, put on, in verse 12, put on a heart of compassion. Kindness, that word again, humility, gentleness and patience, forgiving one another, and beyond all these things, put on love. Well, what does love look like? Well, love in 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous, it doesn't brag, it is not arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, isn't provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. This is the sort of love that Ruth has for Boaz and Boaz has for Ruth. It's a love that is prepared to say, we will put aside until the right time anything we want to do because we are going to live righteously in the eyes of God. And I think that what this passage, this chapter tells us, is that the example of Ruth and Boaz is that it is possible to live righteously. Amidst a culture of unrighteousness. Even in times when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, they were prepared to do what was right in the eyes of God. And so there's a challenge there. Are we prepared to be that sort of people? Are we prepared to lay aside those things that are sinful and put on righteousness, put on this love of God? So I'd like us to uh, stand and I just want to pray for us before we close. Just encourage you to draw near to him again as we were in worship whatever you may feel about the levels if that's not the right word but the levels of righteousness or unrighteousness that are in your mind now as we've just looked at that issue I want to remind you of the cross and the fact that Jesus' blood covers it all And that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So just draw near to him now. Remember that the invitation we had in worship is that his arms are wide and we can come on in. So just draw near to him now. God, we thank you so much for the story of Boaz and Ruth. A story of romance, a story of righteousness, a story of kindness and love, a story of people whose hearts are set on honouring you. We pray, Father, that their example would challenge and stir us, but not to try and do things in our own effort but to throw ourselves again on you and in the power of your blood and the filling of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask this week, God, may we draw near to you again and again. May you help us to live lives which are righteous, where decisions that we make are righteous and after you, that we put on love and kindness and compassion and we live lives which honour you, our great Redeemer. Amen.